Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Our guest for the second of two podcasts is Jean Kilborn, internationally known expert, uh, author, and filmmaker, and does groundbreaking work on the image of women in advertising, particularly alcohol and tobacco, and more recently, food. Uh, she has award-winning books, including Can't Buy My Love, How Advertising Changes the Way We Think and Feel, and also has prize-winning films, most notably Killing Us Softly, uh, that is now in its fourth version, uh, mm-hmm. done originally in 1979, that are very powerful and persuasive, and I think the best expositions of these topics that exist. So, Jean, I'm delighted to have you here. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. So in the first of the two podcasts, we talked about the way alcohol and tobacco are sold, and especially the way uh, images of women are used in these. And you've thought um, more recently about food and the way women are portrayed in food advertisements and how what themes are being used to sell these. So what are you finding generally as you look at these and what sort of themes are emerging? Well, one of the things that I felt looking at uh, food advertising was to sort of make me look at the image of women from a slightly different perspective that I've been saying for a long time that the image makes us feel bad and it you know affects self-esteem and it also, I think, creates a climate that encourages violence. But it does something else. It really creates a profound sense of disconnection from our bodies. So women's bodies are often dismembered in as just one part of the body is focused upon. And I think that starting very early on now, girls and women are encouraged to feel really disconnected as if our bodies were just a separate separate parts, each one of which needs improvement, and that this sense of disconnection is extremely painful. And then what happens, which adds insult to injury, is the advertisers offer us addictive products to help deal with the pain that's caused by this disconnection. So they offer us alcohol, they offer us cigarettes, and they offer us food. And they really offer the product as a way that will make us feel more connected. But the way that it'll make us feel more connected is by we'll, we'll be in a relationship with the product itself. So not a relationship with a human being, but rather with the, the substance, the product, the food, the bottle, whatever. But it's the thing. The product is sexualized. The product becomes the partner. The, we are loyal to a brand rather than anything else. So the product is portrayed as... A, a human being almost that's giving you important human things. Even better, because, you know, human beings are so irksome. We have needs and vulnerabilities, you know, and it's so difficult. There's a Toyota ad that says uh, you can love it without getting your heart broken. And you just can't say that about a human being, you know. You're, you're vulnerable. But if you love your bag of Cheez-Its or you love your Lay's potato chips or you love your Toyota, for that matter, at least you don't have to worry about that. It may never love you back. In fact, it won't love you back, but it's not going to break your heart. You've collected some examples of such advertisements. Could you mind telling us about some of those? Yeah, some of my favorites are the food ads. They're just amazing. There's uh, an ad for chocolate. I can't remember the brand, but it says something like smooth, rich, and you know, impossible to resist. If it were a man, you'd marry it. You know, uh, Or uh, another one that says watch TV with your arm around the one you love, and it's not your partner. It's a bag of Cheez-Its. 
or another one for Oreo cookies that shows the cookie in the center of the ad and the copy says, your lips look so lonely, may I keep them company? And then the copy at the bottom, the tagline is, the most seductive cookie ever. I mean, that's quite amazing, really. They're talking about a cookie and really referring to it as seductive. Or one other one, a candy bar that says, um, you don't unwrap it, you undress it. So that's very, very blatant that you're in a relationship with this candy bar. So it's really amazing to me how, how deeply they understand the psychology of addiction and how deeply they understand the psychology of something like compulsive overeating and that need to feel uh, connected, to feel in a relationship. Well, the cookie one you mentioned in particular has a, a human connection part um, because it talks about loneliness, but then also a sexual part because you're seducing, you're be, you know, this, this whole seduction thing going right. on. You're being seduced by your cookie, the most seductive cookie ever. It's amazing. There's another candy ad that says, uh, what you do in the dark is nobody else's business. And to me, that, um, that really normalizes binging and compulsive overeating uh, because, and it also sort of obviously implies that there's shame here and something that you're going to be doing in the dark alone and you're going to feel ashamed about, but it tries to normalize it, that it's nobody else's business, it's perfectly okay. And why would they do that? Well, because a small percentage of candy eaters eat most of the candy. You know, it's the same with alcohol. 10% of drinkers consume 60% of all the alcohol sold. And I'm sure it's about the same. Probably 10% of candy bar eaters consume 60% of the candy bars. And so th th and that, those are the people, obviously, who are responsible for the biggest profits. So in the same way that the alcohol industry certainly doesn't want people to drink responsibly, it needs people to drink alcoholically, uh, the candy bar sellers love bingers. You know, what could be better? The bulimic is really the perfect customer for the candy bar uh, seller. Now, one could say that companies are in business to do business and to make money, and that the exploitation of these human frailties and needs and emptinesses that people feel are just fair game for them. Uh, so what's wrong with what they're doing? If you look at it from the point of view of the companies, you're absolutely right. I mean, their business is to increase profits. That's it, to maximize profits. And they're um, beholden to their shareholders, and that's their business, which means that for the tobacco industry, it's good to get kids to smoke because that's, you know, customers for a long, long time. Uh, the same with the alcohol industry. If they can hook kids and turn them into alcoholics when they're very young or encourage alcoholism, then that's bigger profits. So they're, they're amoral, really, in that sense. That's their business. But they're causing an enormous amount of harm, especially when they're selling products like tobacco. Cigarettes kill half of all the users. You know, 3,000 children start smoking every day in this country. Half of them will die directly as a result, and they'll lose at least 15 years of their lives. Um, alcohol is the most destructive drug in the country, without question. Um, and you know, the high-risk user is the one who's, you know, causing the problems. Uh, we have tremendous problems with obesity, with eating disorders, with diabetes. So the, the candy bar eater who's, you know, binging on candy bars is doing harm to himself or herself. So we can't just look at it from the point of view of what's good for business. We have to look at it as a public health problem and see that there's going to have to be some compromises here. Now, in the case of cigarettes, I mean, I think it would be good to 
not allow any advertising at all, you know, to really have big restrictions on the marketing, as they do in most other countries, developed countries. Same with alcohol. Most developed countries don't allow alcohol advertising. It doesn't mean they don't allow the product, and I'm not certainly advocating that, but should we really be marketing to kids a product that's going to cause them enormous harm? I think not. And we need to be, have marketing restrictions on food advertising as well. So marketing that exploits basic human needs could be helpful or harmful depending on what particular products are being marketed. And the point you're making is that almost all of what's marketed is bad for people. So we'll go back to the food arena. Mm -hmm. um, when, when these things like you, you're giving examples like the seductive nature of the cookie, well, if it was a seductive nature of carrots, or the seduct mm -hmm. seductive nature of tofu or something, well, then that would be a whole different thing. But it's the chocolate, it's the chips, it's the salty snack foods, it's the sodas, it's all those sort of foods that are mm -hmm. being marketed most aggressively with these themes. I can't think of any food that's good for you that is heavily marketed. Is there such a thing? Are you aware of any? that's? I can't recall any ads for water, let's say, except, of course, pricey bottled water, but, or, you know, as for carrots, for that matter, or broccoli or anything like that. But as you say, if they, if, if they could do that, and I, I still probably wouldn't like the idea of the seductive carrot, but nonetheless, uh, it would be a whole lot better than the way, th what they are selling. That the food that's heavily advertised is just about without exception junk food. You know, it's sugary beverages, junk food, junk cereals. A lot of it targets kids and gets them used to uh, eating this stuff very early in life. It normalizes their use of this, these products to the parents so the parents don't see it as, as harmful in the way that it is. So, yeah, I think there's a huge problem with, uh, with these products being marketed at all. So it's well known now that uh, there's aggressive marketing of unhealthy foods. You're making a major contribution to this discussion by pointing out some of the themes that are being used and how the industry exploits fundamental human vulnerabilities in order to sell these products and that they start doing it at very early ages. Now, that's not something, the early ages isn't something that we've talked about quite yet, but I know you're concerned about. Would you mind mentioning that? Sure. Marketers have found that babies at the age of six months can recognize corporate logos, and that's the age at which they're now starting to target our children. Babies at six months can recognize the golden arches, you know, and so uh, it's astonishing, but they're starting targeting there. What they're doing with some things is putting certain fragrances into the product, so there'll be a powerful emotional response to the product. Um, and so little tiny children are growing up, you know, wanting certain kinds of food to go to certain kinds of places to eat and everything, because they've been uh, saturated with this stuff starting from almost from birth. Obviously, we're facing a terrible problem here. What can be done about it? It doesn't sound like we can count on industry to come around and do this on their own. I don't think we can count on industry at all. Again, it's, it's really our goals, which are to reduce consumption of these products, whether you're talking about alcohol, tobacco, unhealthy food. They're just not congruent. with the in Industry's goals have got to be to, to increase the consumption, have to be. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing their job. So therefore, our goals are not congruent at all. So it makes no sense to me when there are industry representatives sitting on boards of directors of you know, organizations that are trying to do something about the problem. Never did make any sense to me. Uh, we, we need to have public policy that's going to create an environment that's going to make it a whole lot easier for parents and individuals to make healthy choices. The huge problem there, of course, is the amount of money that industries give to politicians and the amount of clout that they have in government, which is way beyond what it should be or what it is in any other developed nation. Uh, so 
One big issue we haven't talked about is campaign finance reform. You know, the fact that politicians have to raise huge amounts of money in order to afford the advertising really basically makes the system corrupt from the from the beginning. And but it's going to be very difficult to to turn that around, but absolutely essential. So what are some of the public policies that you think might be worth thinking about? Well, I think there are some countries that don't allow any advertising at all aimed at children because the brain research now is clear that children are not capable of processing ads. And so it's absolutely unfair to market directly to children. And there are countries that see it this way and they don't allow it. Well, we're a long way from that, but that would be a really good thing uh, to do that. We could have um, major restrictions on the average. A ban on tobacco advertising makes sense because this is a product about which nothing good can be said. Um, Restrictions on alcohol advertising and restrictions on food advertising. We also should be uh, having public policy that will change the kind of uh, food that's served and made available in schools, that will bring back physical education in our schools. There's a whole lot we can do uh, from a public policy point of view that will help to create a healthier environment. You know, there's a lot of interest um, about the idea of media literacy, training people to be better consumers of media. Do you think that's a useful way to proceed? I think media literacy is extremely important, and I've been an advocate of media literacy from the very beginning. I think I was the first first person to suggest using media literacy uh, as a tool for public health, um, and because critical viewers will be more discriminating. They'll be less easily manipulated, and that would be extraordinarily important. And uh, media literacy isn't a panacea either, any more than any one of these other things, but it's part of a, of a concerted effort to create an environment that will make it more likely that people will make healthy choices and less likely that they'll make unhealthy choices, and that's really what we're trying to do. You know, the, the irksome thing about the media literacy concept, I, 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 it tremendously good concept. I'm certainly in support of it, but it, it's such a shame that you have to let bad practices occur and then try to teach people not to fall victim to them, yes. whereas it would be so much better just not to have the bad practices in the first place. Absolutely, but one could argue that a media literate public would demand better and that eventually uh, some of these bad practices would fall away because because enough people would no longer be seduced by them or manipulated by them. And it would just increase uh, the quality of everything if people were media literate. And I think that there is, there is something to be said for that. I wonder, and this is a, a cynical part of me saying this, but I wonder if um, this media literacy movement grows and grows, whether the industry will try to co-opt it. In some oh, it way. already has. It, it already has. Oh, it's, you should see the, uh, the huge media companies that have put out media literacy programs mm-hmm. and, uh, and that are uh, getting these programs into the schools and make sure that, that you know, what's done is, is nothing that will really make any real difference. You know, it's not really going to turn people into critical thinkers or critical viewers. It's going to do something totally, totally different. Maybe show how a TV commercial is made or something, but not teach the student how to really deconstruct that commercial. Are there any model programs that you think could be looked to as examples? There are some. There's a wonderful organization called ACME, Action Coalition for Media Education, and they have some uh, really good materials and good programs, and uh, so that's one. And there are some others, that, but the United States is one of the few developed nations in the world that doesn't teach media literacy in its schools. So we have 
little pockets of media literacy depending on passionate individuals who are teaching it, but we don't have any kind of national mandate and we really, we really desperately need one. Are you optimistic about the future? I'm an optimist by nature and, I, and I'm afraid that the research indicates that we are sort of born that way or not, so I can't really take credit for it. But uh, I think that the antidote to despair is action. So it's always been the case for me. And so the more that the more I do, the more you do, the more we all do to try and do something about this, I think not only does it make it more likely that we'll find solutions to these problems, but it also will make us feel better <laughs> during the process and uh, help us to not succumb to despair. And I know you have a lot of helpful information on your website. Would you mind giving me a web address? Sure. It's jeankilborn.com, and that's J-E-A-N-K-I-L-B-O-U-R-N-E.com. And there's an extensive resource list on the website with all kinds of places to get further information. Great. Well, thank you so much for your inspired work. You've been doing it for a long time, have done it beautifully and powerfully. And as I said, millions of people have been affected by this. So it's really nice of you to join us. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kelly. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Our guest today is Jean Kilborn, internationally recognized author and filmmaker. And please visit our website at www.yalerudcenter.org. You'll find a link to the other podcasts that we've recorded with Jean, as well as podcasts recorded with other excellent visitors to the Rudd Center. Thank you.